Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Generally speaking, lawyers in the public imagination do not generate a surplus of sympathy. But I'm not sure that's fair. And even if you think it's fair... Bear with me because our guest this week who has been teaching mindfulness to aspiring lawyers at the University of Miami Law School is really interesting, both in terms of his personal story and also in in terms of his approach to meditation. So Scott Rogers is coming up. First, let's do your calls. Here's number one. My name is John. I'm calling from Abu Dhabi in the UAE. Uh, First, I want to say thank you for the podcast. And the, uh, and the work that you're doing, it's proven to be very helpful uh, and enlightening. Uh, so my question is this. Um, I've been meditating in an established practice for the past seven years. And I went home for the holidays and started teaching some family and some friends and realized that I have kind of a penchant for this and maybe even an ability. So... In a roundabout way, my question would be, what advice would you give to current practitioners that are possibly prospective teachers and want to move into instruction and teach this stuff? Thank you. First of all, that's awesome. I, I think it's great. And one of my biggest fears about the state of the meditation industrial complex right now is that there aren't enough highly trained teachers. And I've said this before in the podcast, I am of the view, it's just my opinion, that the great teachers have a lot of experience on retreat. And really, you know, it it takes, you're going to get under the hood of somebody's mind. You need to have a lot of time on the cushion yourself. It's a position of extraordinary responsibility and power. And we don't have enough of them, in in my opinion. And so I, I, I'm i psyched that you're into it. So I would recommend, and bear in mind, I come out of a specific, I've I've practiced in a specific tradition. So I'm 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 biased in that direction. I just want to be open about my biases. So there there are two places I would recommend you go: um, the Insight Meditation Society, which is in Barrie, Massachusetts, B A R R E. They have a teacher training program, uh, and I believe, and I don't know too much about this, it may be affiliated with or separate from Spirit Rock, uh, which is on the West Coast in Marin County. I believe it's Marin County, north of San Francisco, uh, which is a related meditation center, and they either both have teacher training programs or have a joint one. But in any event, I would recommend talking to them because they produce an extraordinary number of amazing teachers, many of whom I know quite well because they teach on the 10% Happier app. So I think it's awesome what you're up to, and that's where I would recommend you go to check it out and anybody else who's listening who wants to get into this. All right, let's do call number two. Hey, Dan. Kimberly calling. I have found meditation to have an incredible impact on my life, and I want desperately to pass this practice to my children. And I would love to have your best tips on how to do this without freaking out my children that have been raised in more of a faith-based lifestyle that I am actually starting to question and make a turn about. I've already tried to approach it with the one child I have that I think could use it the most, and I have gotten the typical mean girl, what is this, all mandy-pandy, peace, love, not war kind of 
response, and she thinks I've lost my mind. And she also genuinely believes that she's the one living in reality, and I'm not. But that's a whole other conversation. Have a great day, and thank you. Hugs and hugs to all you, Bianca, and your little boy. Have a great day. Thank you. That's very sweet. I appreciate it. And um, I had a minute of thinking, oh, no, is this the same question I get all the time? I want to teach meditation to my kids. How do I do it? But actually, this is yours is a really interesting twist um, because uh, it sounds like your kids are are in a faith tradition and uh, therefore there's some sort of baked in hostility to meditation. And so you're really just trying to figure out how to position it so that given their conditioning, they might be open to it. And so I would say, and this is just my opinion, I would say that you should really depict it in secular terms, that this is not about attacking their belief system. It's about a a secular training of the brain and the mind to be maximally effective. So we all want to have productivity and focus that's operating on the highest possible level so that we can get as much done, uh, I, w- I would assume that would be attractive to your children. We all uh, know that we suffer from strong emotions at times and sometimes, as a consequence, do things we regret. Uh, shaving that down, shaving down our emotional reactivity, that's attractive, I think, to a lot of people. And I think pointing out that a, a lot of people in our society who we admire, uh, the uh, U.S. military, uh, corporate executives, entertainers, uh, elite athletes are doing this not because they're in the market uh, for uh, abandoning their core religious beliefs, but because it makes them better at what they do. So I, I would really position this as uh, something that's secular and that, you know, if these are people who really care about their prayer life, for example, being able to curb to a certain extent the uh, craziness of of their own minds, the monkey mind will, I would imagine, improve their prayer life so they're less distracted and more focused on, on, on what it is they, they want to focus. So that, that's my advice for what it's worth. Best of luck to you. Let's get to our guest this week because this is a really smart person who uh, I think has a lot to say that, uh, that is going to be interesting to you guys. Scott Rogers is uh, the director of, of the Mindfulness and Law program at the University of Miami Law School. He works with both students and faculty and helps them embrace mindfulness as a way to uh, be less stressed in a, an extremely stressful environment and uh, in what is a, in a an extremely uh, stressful uh, field of endeavor professionally. This was actually recorded uh, in January, so if there's an outdated reference in here, please forgive us. The reason why we're, we're posting it now is uh, because the law is on the minds of many Americans, as uh, Brett Kavanaugh is uh, in the midst of uh, his confirmation proceedings on Capitol Hill. In fact, I'm looking at a TV monitor right now, and he's on there. So here we go. Here's Scott Rogers. So let me ask you, how did you how did you start meditating? Well, Pam, about uh, 28 years ago when we were in the law school environment. Oh, she was in law school with you? Pam and I met in law school. In fact, just months before it was all going to um, turn into the next aspect of life in the law, that is graduating, um, said, we have a meeting with Marty Peters. Marty Peters is this extraordinarily wonderful woman who was the school psychologist, University of Florida, had a school psychologist uh, at the law school, which was a sign of its being on top of things. And uh, she would always offer students and others 
tips on reducing stress or focusing and concentrating and those nice things that I always found helpful and interesting. And she also was trained by the Maharishi in Transcendental Meditation. So one day, out of the blue, Pam said, we're going to see Marty. I've signed us up to learn TM. And that's how, it, that's how the formal practice sort of got set in motion. What were you like at that time? Was it were you super stressed? Was there a reason Pam dragged you in to <laughs> do TM, and and what kind of effect did it have on you? Well, Pam might have a different answer to the question. Um, I loved law school. Uh, I thrived in law school. I found it to be very rich and not stuff I did not know. I loved the learning process. I loved my classmates. I loved faculty. So I I think that I was not stressed in law school. Our relationship was somewhat new. Uh, and Pam, you know, the relationship you know continues to this day. You've met Pam, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know what Pam would say. I'm sure I've changed in many ways, uh, but I don't think I'll have to ask her. That's a great question, Dan. Why did she? I never thought about why. Uh, it just seemed interesting. What well, did you notice an effect internally when you started to do it? I, I was I was drawn to it. This idea of Turning my attention inward, and in this case, you're probably familiar with TM. There's a you know concentrating in, in, on a word, right? And to, mantra, a mantra, to continue to come back to that word when the mind wanders, or however that may be. And really, in some ways, TM offers, you know, the the promise perhaps of 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 of, of the experience really enriching and deepening in some you know. I don't forget the word. Woody Allen used in Annie Hall, but some transplended sort of way or something, right? There's something that I think captures people with the prospect of really an enriched experience. Um, I didn't necessarily have that so much as the motivating force, but this real interest in noticing and and perhaps uh, narrowing the field of focus around an object. I found that to be quite interesting. And I had, yeah, I found that to be quite interesting. Well, I mean, a lot of lawyers have a good Attention span. You got to sit and read through it. This is the reason why I'm not a lawyer. Um, I thought about it. It just mm. seems horrible. Sorry, no offense. Actually, offense. Um, <laughs> it seemed horrible. Um, but so I can imagine why a mind that would be good at law school would enjoy locking in on a mantra and seeing how well you could focus on it. That's interesting. You know, I think a lot of people, certainly a lot of law students and a lot of attorneys, will talk about how just how busy their mind is how restless the mind is, how antsy. And a lot of people, you know, this idea of people saying, I'm ADD or I'm ADHD, I hear that all the time in and outside of. So that just may be a, an aspect of the ethos of the, of the moment mm-hmm. and, and just the way things are, are moving. What you're saying is very interesting. I do think that there is something about a certain aspect of the lawyer mind locking in on something. I think there's something to that. I don't think that that canvases the law, though, broadly. Uh, some, yes, not all. Uh, for me, maybe, maybe. I think I've always had a fairly good uh, ability to sort of stay on top of things, but but restless as well. Did did you find that doing this practice was useful for you in your in your life and your relationships? Did it make any difference whatsoever? You know, I didn't stay with it long enough as the practice. I think what happened was we learned it. I really enjoyed it. We practiced it. Pam and I practiced it together a little bit. Uh, we went to Marty and her husband Don's house where we would sit and practice and maybe with a small group. Marty, by the way, is, does a lot of interesting stuff with, I think, TM in its larger aspect today. And uh, But there wasn't a lot to read about it. 
I was hungry, I think, for learning more about this introspective, attentional orientation. And I began to read what I could find, which back in 1990, 91 wasn't tons. At least I couldn't find tons. And that led me to a couple of books on Zen, led me to Alan Watts, led me to um, some interesting – even one was like a religious. It was a, it was a Catholic priest who had become a Zen uh, practitioner and wrote a book on it. I found that to be helpful for instruction, like learning about uh, more of a, a less mantra-oriented practice. And, and then in short order, it led to mindfulness, which became the one – the practice that really took hold. So when you say mindfulness in this context, are you referring to secular mindfulness or did you learn mindfulness within a Buddhist context? Mm. At first, the books that I found on mindfulness were books written by Thich Nhat Hanh. He has – Vietnamese Zen a, master, yes. A wonderful voice for mindfulness, a wonderful way of, I think, speaking to it simply – and beautifully. And there were just some books. If I went looking in bookstores, he had books. Uh, I think Parallax Press had published a bunch and they just kept coming out faster than I could read them. Another one was coming out and he tended to, at least in my experience, restate basic fundamental insights. And so you would read another book and really reread something, but it would resonate and reinforce. So he is, as you said, Vietnamese and from the Buddhist tradition. And so I would say that my early readings and then as the journey progressed, uh, sort of engagement was with uh, the Buddhist psychology and teachings. It's so funny what you said about uh, Thich Nhat Hanh restating the basic propositions of mindfulness. It just really hammers home the point that we can hear it, read it, practice it a thousand times, but we still need to hear it 10,000 more times because it's something it, it runs so counter to the – to the way we operate, in other words, mindlessly, yeah. that the, this message of waking up, breaking out of autopilot, we just had in all, in all of its aspects. That's what I actually view as one of the functions of this podcast is to just have a weekly waking up party, uh, a reminder session. It's it's not dissimilar to, in some ways, why you go to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember years ago, another person very early on that really influenced me, and to this day I, I cherish his voice, is Ram Das. Mm-hmm. And I remember in one of Ram Dass's— Let me Dass's, say a little bit about him. He just He's a former Harvard professor, got fired for giving acid to the students or something like that, and then went off to India, studied with a Hindu master, changed his name to Ram Das, and now lives in Hawaii yeah. and is still a teacher. <laughs> And I, and I think he got fired for being both researcher because it was re- it was LSD and related research that was that was that was okayed back then and maybe sort of having a resurgence in some ways, but wanted to be both researcher and subject. Yeah. That that's yeah. right. That, that 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 that's right. He's an extraordinary. If you can listen, and you probably have. If, if if you listen to Ram Dass talk and articulate things, at least I was just drawn in. And also he, I think, early on was very interested in getting out of his head, right, the voice in the head that you speak about so beautifully. And then in time, I think, emerged with the realization also it was deepening his connection of the heart. And I think that's where he, his own, at least my tracking of him and perhaps myself as it connects to that, sort of moved into that sphere of really a a heart-opening embrace uh, maybe being the key in many ways to unlocking so much. And, and so I find him to be really uh, wonderful to learn from. And in one of the things he said, he w- he began by saying something like, 
there's nothing I'm going to share with you all that you don't already know. <laughs> it's that we tend to forget. Mm-hmm. So let's, here we are, we've come together to remember. And I think when Thich Nhat Hanh, when you read it over and over and over, and when you share it, when you interview people and hear the same and very similar pieces of wisdom, um, yeah, it's like, it is, it runs so contrary to something that it is this important wake up and then we fall asleep again. Let me hone in on a, on a phrase you just used. This is one of those phrases that's a bit of a um, red flag for me, but I, I think there. I, I think I know where you're going with it. And I just would like to hear you unpack it. Heart opening embrace. Hmm. You, for me, as a, a, a dedicated anti sentimentalist, um, phrases like that. I'm always sort of policing my interlocutors about you know what does that mean. <laughs> so, and you, you used it. So, what do you mean by it? <sighs> well, you know, it's interesting. In the law, for example, which is a very adversarial system by its very nature. Like life is adversarial, right, in, in, in many ways. And the law is by design an adversarial process that perhaps it tamps down on what it might otherwise be if we didn't have the law. And so this this idea that the other is the enemy, like the other is a threat, the other is a problem. And the other, of course, if we're really if the voice in our head is really calling the shots and we're not catching that voice, then everything is the other. And that's not necessarily correct. At least it's not correct, even at the simplest, most superficial level, that the threat that we presume that this person represents is in fact the threat that they actually represent. The stories we tell ourselves and we hear ourselves really can make it so much more of a of a distance than it actually is. So I think for me that heart-opening embrace – on the one hand is a, an opportunity to realize that we're much more connected. We've got we're in this together. Even if it's a even if it's a case and you're you're on opposite sides, we're still seeking justice and we're still going to go home to our friends and our family and just we, we're doing the best we can and it's challenging and there's a lot of confusion. So on the one hand at the most superficial level, Dan, I'd say it's realizing that we've got more going on together than we think and we're not quite the the threats that we, we, we take each other to be and we don't have to be as guarded and as stressed as, as that leads to. Going a little deeper, I think it speaks to – I think it speaks to this, this, this recognition that if we can really tame that voice in our head, not forget it, but really size it up and befriend it. Or maybe that's another word you're going to want to unpack. Really befriend it. No, I'm, I'm cool with that. It. Okay, good. Um, then, then there's this letting go of something that was never real in the first place, and 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 the feeling of connection, which is not touchy feely, but is actually inherent in the system in which we find ourselves. We realize, and it and it's, it's a game changer. But how did this play out? And you at this point, I'm you're you're a young lawyer. You just graduated. You're reading all these books by Thich Nhat Hanh, which is probably not. Super common in your profession, especially at that time. But you're 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 actually practicing the law. I don't know what you what what you'll tell us what context you were in. How did how did, did that play? Did you find yourself you know giving big hugs to people on a different side of a case, or like how did this heart opening embrace play <laughs> out in your legal practice? Well, yeah. Well, I practiced commercial litigation, so there's an intensity to that tough yeah. stuff. With a wonderful firm, with wonderful people who, by the way, were very interested in talking about mindfulness because that was when I was firmly in this mindfulness sort of 
approach to, to, to a contemplative practice. Love talking about the mind moving into the past and regret and doubt. Love talking about very interested and insightful about the mind moving into the future and uh, anxiety, et cetera. And then when it came to practice, that it, that didn't to, to your point, even your, you said, I, I love what you said, your book, the first book, 10% Happier, this extraordinarily brilliant book. If you, if you needed justification and a basis to, to sort of uh, explore mindfulness, there you, you have it. You have it. And I use that book in class. I think I've shared with you. Students love it. We read it. I have them put together a little chapter of their own or a little, you know, if, their own story, mm. not the way you, because it's so, it's so interesting and helpful. But Thank this you. practice is elusive, which is why your next book, the, the current book, I think is really important as well. So this journey, I mean, for me, that was, say, the early 90s when, it, when I began to practice and become interested. And for me, it was a great deal of reading. It was reading. It was reading. I didn't have a teacher. I was in South Florida. I wasn't – I was married or just gotten married and and, and, and I did a series of what are called judicial clerkship with judges, uh, which then led to the law firm and commercial litigation. And it was just busy. And I found a lot of my spare time, I was reading books on mindfulness. And it, the, the game changer for me was when I was in a sangha. This is a, a Thich Nhat Hanh sort of suggestion that people start these, these groups, these mindfulness groups. And we had one in South Florida that I – on the beach, Miami Beach, that I – with a wonderful f- friend now, Jill Seiler, who just opened her home to people to come in once a week for an hour and a half to – to, to, to read about mindfulness and sit and practice mindfulness and then talk about the experience. So for many years, it was just a student reading and learning. And I wouldn't – I would say that there was no heart opening early on. There definitely was in ways that, by the way, weren't always so – didn't go as swimmingly as I'd hoped. You know, the ability to be with my wife and have her say something that was probably quite right and all that, but I was resisting it and rather than – react and have it turn into a, a fight. I was quiet and listened. And then she said to me, why are you so quiet? <laughs> right? So it, it was, but I, but I was like, but I am quiet. This is a good thing. This is a step in a direction. Was she, by the way, keeping up with her meditation practice? No, Pam is brilliant at pointing me in the direction, probably to the, what you intimated earlier, because it'll be helpful to me and helpful to her. And then, and then going off and doing something entirely different. So I'd say there was this journey of really slowly and maybe but surely stepping more and more in the direction of being a little bit less reactive, a little bit more aware, and then, of course, having all that fall away and becoming reactive and not aware, and then having that be the very stuff Mm -hmm. that helped me become a little bit more aware and a little bit less reactive for years. And I would say it was probably helpful to the relationship. It was helpful to me. You know, life does its stuff with, you know, wonderful children and and then parenting and parents getting older and friends passing away and things like that. And I think that the practice has been helpful at, at creating a, you know, a more alive and connected and aware me. And, um, and then in time, I think there probably was a bit of time into this when that heart opening embrace, I, I be, something began to shift and it wasn't, it just happened. So when you say you began to hug people <laughs> or that, that is something that I think is nice to do, but but it can't I can't do it on purpose. But but it wasn't like I, you were still I don't know if you were still doing commercial embrace uh, commercial litigation when the embrace <laughs> happened. Uh, but you know how did that how did that change your relationship either in your own mind or in real life to the people who were, but for all intents and purposes, your adversaries. Right. Okay. You, you made me think of something. So I, so again, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of 
I think that the heart-opening embrace took, I'm going to say, 10 years or longer to even begin to kick it in a way that I felt towards the, quote, adversaries. I remember when I was, uh, we had a very difficult case with opposing counsel who was extremely just, just unbelievable, it was unbelievably difficult case, unbelievably difficult opposing counsel and his client. And it was one of these cases where you're so sure you're right and you're so sure they're misrepresenting. And, and, I, and, and I think that was correct. And, 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 but we all have our takes on things. I remember having a conversation after some hearing or something and the posing, I was so like my, even as I'm saying it, my, my heart, <laughs> I feel my heart racing. Um, it was just so un- unbelievably frustrating to want to, to be feeling like you're being treated unfairly and things are being misrepresented and you're having a difficult time setting the record straight. And I sat and I practiced. So I, I, that was the time to practice. So I remember sitting and I did a, a, a mindfulness practice. And somewhere in the middle of the practice, I had this realization, this insight that I was contributing to the suffering. Mm-hmm. That even though I may very well have been right, nonetheless, the way I was responding in the conversation, the way I was dealing with the matter of litigation, that I was, there was resistance and there was, uh, that, that, that I wasn't helping making it, I wasn't reducing that quality of dissatisfaction with the experience. I was contributing to it. Mm-hmm. And that to me was a, um, a realization that we're all in this together and me too. So, yeah. what, what, so what could you do? I'm just curious about this because I think a lot of people – I'm honing in on this because I think a lot of people well, – we're going to talk about this with you teaching mindfulness in a law school context. But a lot of people worry about meditation and I still on some levels have my moments of worrying about it too that what does it mean if you're in a, in, in a competitive context, which the law certainly is in, in many of its – aspects if not most of its aspects what what is it how do you take this stuff into your professional life when there's a certain amount of vanquishing that often needs you're you're endeavoring to 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 do yeah well you know i don't think that being present being aware being alert hearing what's actually being said letting the person who's talking no matter what your relationship to them and no matter how hostile your relationship may be in terms of a legal matter, letting them finish what they're saying, having them feel that you've heard them, that would be not notching it up to another level of hostility, actually hearing them a little bit more than you might otherwise, having people in your midst who you're collaborating with be able to more meaningfully say, well, wait a minute here. Let's talk about what's really maybe going on here. You know, Sharon Salzberg has that nice phrase that mindfulness is being able to tell the difference between uh, what's happening and the story you're telling yourself about what's happening. So mm-hmm. everybody's got a story about what's happening. And if one person can sort of offer a little nugget of of what's actually taking place, that can be really helpful. So that doesn't mean that you don't forcefully pursue and at times emotionally and energetically engage because that's responsive to the call of the moment and uh, and, 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 and do what needs to be done. But it does mean you're doing what's actually called for to be responsive. You're not overdoing it and you're not underdoing it. Both of those would be um, sort of equidistant from that, that responsive point 
uh, something that 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 um, doesn't serve the the, the situation yeah, as well. Well said, and it just reminds me of something else. Elsa Sharon Salzberg has said. Sharon, for the uninitiated, is a eminent meditation teacher who's been on this podcast many times. She says you can compete without being cruel, and that's essentially what, in some ways, what you're describing. That's right. That's right. I, I once there was a, a a poet or somebody said, "Treat a person as you will, just hold them in your heart." So to get to your heart opening embrace, treat a person as you will, like as you must, but don't lose that sense of connectedness to them as a human being who just like you has a life that began is going through the challenges and the struggles and the sadnesses and the celebrations and will end and um don't forget that and that's that's something you feel not something you know just in your head uh again well said so you you then went on to join the faculty at the University of Miami law school where you are still and you teach mindfulness to law students so when you first proposed this idea, what kind of looks did you get? <laughs> the fortunate thing was uh, I've tried not to propose things. Uh, I don't know if I try not to propose things because then I get attached to wanting it to happen or I've just been very fortunate. So I was at a Florida bar convention. I had my little table out, sort of mindfulness balance in the lawyer's brain was this workshop I was doing. I was People were walking by and giving me the glances you might imagine or coming over and saying, oh, this looks really interesting. And Janet Stearns, the dean of students at the law school, who had recently joined as dean of students, said, this is interesting. Wellness is a big part of what really matters in the law school environment. Do you think you could come and do this mindfulness balance in the lawyer's brain for law students? So I said, sure. And it it really was a a life changer for me because I was not anticipating going into law schools. And uh, went and taught this class, this voluntary class, uh, I think 15 students Signed up, eight students finished, called Mindfulness Balance in the Law Student's Brain. And uh, those that finished liked it and fortunately also ended up doing well so that it also spoke well, although I think they were just extraordinary students who would have – they pre-selected in a nice way. They were done well no matter what. But that led to then me going and talking at orientation to all of the students. And when I did that, uh, 100 and I think 20 signed up. So we had three classes the next semester or the next year rather and it just sort of went from there. And then two years later, the dean – a new dean came, uh, Trish White, and she said, this is really important. Let's make this a part of – let's grow this. And then eventually in 2010 said, let's make this a program. So it really just was very the, – the, the faculty and administration supported it. That's huge. The students were responsive. That's that's everything. And it just sort of has grown on its own. And I've just been lucky to sort of be there for them. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile... 
families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So at this point, is it an integral part of the curriculum, or like, do, is is it a um, a requirement? It, it is a, it's an integral part of the curriculum in the sense that there are now classes like mindful ethics, mindfulness and law, uh, mindfulness and motivating business compliance with the law. A new class I, I teach. Uh, mindful ethics with a wonderful uh, dear friend and collaborator, Jan Jakobowitz. I teach mindfulness and motivating business compliance with law with a wonderful colleague, Rob Rosen. Uh, I teach mindful leadership with a wonderful colleague, Raquel Matis. These are wonderful collaborations to sort of enlarge our collective understanding of mindfulness and the ways that we can share it. And mindfulness, mindful ethics is a part of the PR curriculum. And so students have to take a PR, professional responsibility class, as, as you can imagine, ethics is pretty important for lawyers to walk out and, and have an understanding of. Uh, and it's required, but there's a handful of wonderful offerings in the PR uh, arena, and, and mindful ethics is one of them. I see. I see. So I think I know the answer. You may have just answered my next question in, in your last answer. Lawyers are not super popular uh, in our culture. So why should anybody care whether they're happy? Well, that's interesting. Why should anybody care why they're happy? Why, why, why should we? Why should people be pleased to hear that lawyers are learning mindfulness? Well, first of all, I think it's un, it's it's an it's unfortunate that lawyers have the reputation they have. I think it's oftentimes deserved, but you know, it's a curious thing. You know, if you go way back in time when there was a state of nature right before laws, it was like you know life is nasty, brutish, and short. Yes, you yes, obscene. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. And um, and then something happened and we got this rule of law and something really extraordinary emerged, which was stability out of the chaos, some clarity, a reliable way to interact with each other and move things forward. And I'll, I'll suggest that that was a mindfulness expression unfolding, wisdom and compassion coming out of the state of nature. And lawyers are the stewards, among others, and judges of that. And now we have it where anxiety and depression and suicide thoughts and suicides, which run high across our society, runs especially high, they say, among lawyers. And so I find it very poignant that those who are probably the stewards of holding steady uh, in the midst of enormous conflict and anger and resentment and frustration and unfairness are the ones who are suffering in many ways. So I think that if you that, so i think there's something about caring about our society and those who play the roles that they play and it's not easy for lawyers it's 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 not easy and the profession is suffering and probably that has been going on for a long time which is why this noble profession because when we look back about of, of the great lawyers and judges it's a very noble profession even to this day and those who have relationships with their lawyers that have been so helpful to them, and there's so many that are just doing, I mean, the, the clinics that we have in the law school and just to be helpful to people uh, in need, it's really extraordinary and yet challenging. So why would people care? I think that – You may have just answered it. Okay. But, but, but go, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. 
Well, I, I, be, because it, it helps. It, it, it's it helps because because we should because we we should care about each other. If we have and and lawyers and members of the legal profession help help if if they're not doing well, we all suffer. Yeah, they're they're an integral part of the system that we require in order to have the society we want. Yes. What is going on in the law that that suicides and depression and anxiety appear to be elevated in the profession? You know, I, I've heard I have colleagues who who share who share who talk who who teach my I have colleagues who teach mindfulness to lawyers. I have a wonderful friend, um, Judy Cohen, in the Bay Area, and she. Uh, I've heard her say that the lawyers we 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 are problem solvers, and we're really good at problem solving. We are um, competitive, and we like to stay on top of our game, and we are perfectionistic. We like to get it right, and these three things serve our clients well, serve us well when we're doing our job. But if we can't modulate, if we can't turn down the dial on problem solving, then we're constantly looking for the next thing that's wrong, whether we're at home with our family, with our children, out just relaxing. If we can't tone down that competitiveness, then there's threats everywhere Whether and overstating those threats. And if we just sort of have to keep going through that document again because, you know, goodness, if somebody finds a misplaced comma and we're shamed by that or whatever that may be, we just keep going. And I think that – the thing that serves lawyers so well can become the the thing that that just answers the question you asked about why and and in South Florida we've had just recently a bunch of extraordinarily wonderful and kind and brilliant attorneys in their lives uh, die by suicide and it's just been a very painful painful thing and this is happening um, again throughout all of society to be sure but with students and lawyers and 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 when it happens it's a wake up call to a lot of people because a lot of times people will say i had no idea or i really thought that they were managing it so what are the biggest thorniest most interesting issues that you encounter teaching mindfulness in this context which one would imagine would be a reasonably hostile environment i think the what what's fascinating is is that people are very interested i mean i think now it's even easier because of wonderful books like yours and what's going on in terms of just talking about mindfulness, it's easier. It, it, there's, a, there's a greater, I think, need to keep clear on what it is and what it's not because it, as, as it becomes more and more popular. Uh, wonderful things that aren't mindfulness, but wonderful things can be confused with mindfulness. Like taking a bubble bath. Like taking a bubble bath. And one can take a bubble bath mindfully. Yes. Uh, but Might not be as – as much fun as you thought it would be. <laughs> right. It does. It does. Right. It does. Right. Li- right. The fun that life really offers us might not be the um, the heightened level. Or it could be better. I mean, you really just don't know. I mean, but as soon as you are open to seeing what's happening in your in your mind and body, you might be in for some surprises. Yeah. Right. We are continually in for surprises. Mm-hmm. It'll be. It's nice when we get to that stage where we're not surprised because we get that it's always changing yep. and the direction it's heading and 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 all that stuff that life is deeply about um i think that how I, how can i uh take this thing that i'm drawn to which is wanting to be happier and more balanced and have a a, a less stressed time of it all and still t- still t- stay competitive to your earlier comment that's, that's the thing you hear the most that's the thing i hear the most and then people are relieved when they when they get 
that the two are not antithetical, mm-hmm. but they actually support each other. But it does take a, 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 a little bit of seeing the larger picture and, and understanding more deeply what mindfulness is to get there. It's both of those things. It's, I think, probably first understanding what meditation is and isn't. So it's not, at least in mindfulness meditation, isn't sitting on a mountaintop in a loincloth and listening to a lot of Enya. It is, but, and it's also seeing the bigger picture, which is that, as you said before, uh, you can see the humanity in your competitors while still competing. Yes, that's right. And, and not lose touch of the humanity within yourself. Right. right. Because the two probably run in tandem together. As you lose sight of it in the other, you're losing touch of it within yourself. And as you can't maintain that awareness in the other, you, 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 you cultivate it more fully in yourself. So you've written a bunch of books, but you have a new one. Mm-hmm. What's the new one called and what's it about? The new book is The Elements of Mindfulness, and it is uh, drawing upon the elements of nature, uh, in particular the tree, the wind, uh, clouds, the sun, as four primary elements and then two other elements that are very special to uh, both learn what mindfulness is for those for whom it's new and then to be able to use our connection to nature and our and our and continual uh, immersion in it as an opportunity to wake up, to have it reinforce uh, the cultivation of mindful awareness. Uh, and the book is very much in the service of ways of doing that. So say more about how this would actually work. I mean, South Florida, well, you do have beaches, which are, of course, natural. Mm-hmm. A lot of people spend their times in their cars and in their offices, maybe in their backyard a little bit. But so how do you get people to get in touch with nature without it sounding like sort of an empty bromide? Well, what's interesting is is that what you when you say getting in touch with nature. So for example, there for each of the elements and uh the elements that were chosen are were chosen because no matter where you are in the world, even if you're nowhere near a beach, for example, and I feel very fortunate to to live on the beach, uh you nonetheless have these elements at at the ready. You look outside the window, whether you're driving in the car or you're sitting in your office and you will see a tree and you will uh, you know, have the opportunity to, to one way or the other be reminded uh, of something important uh, because the, the element is right there if you are primed to notice it, if you're primed to notice it. So, for example, there, for each of the elements, there's, a, there's two ways that one approaches the elements as one develops their relationship to mindfulness, the doing and then the being. So, for example, when one sees a tree, and it can be in a book because it could be a book that uh, allows one to practice just by looking at imagery – when one sees a tree, they adjust their posture. When one uh, feels the breeze or hears the breeze, they take, say, three breaths, uh, slower, deeper breaths. These are your instructions. These are the instructions. And if you think about most meditation practices, to be sure, and really a growing body of mindfulness practices, it will often be- begin with something like bring yourself into a comfortable seated posture, upright and stable. Well, there's the tree. Take three slow, deep breaths. There's the wind. Uh, it then moves to the cloud, and this is something that's sort of a, a bit of a little bit of an innovation in the book with the doing practices to to think to yourself, this is a thought, to actually generate a thought in your mind so that you can begin to – right, you get it. You can begin to realize that just because it's arising in your mind doesn't mean it's – True. True, exactly. In fact, in the original version of the book, I had it where when you saw a cloud, you would think to yourself, this is not a thought. The idea being that it, what could be clearer 
that a thought is not true than if you're thinking this is not a thought. <laughs> but a lot of people who read it were like, I don't understand that. So I figured we'll, we'll save that. I didn't understand it until you explained it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's good, though. It's, so you, you think this is a thought. So you hear that. So it primes th- that awareness of the content of the mind. And then you also smile and you think again, but there's a feeling that accompanies it. This is a feeling. And you sort of see if you can't tap into that, that slight uplift of a smile. And then you frown and you think this is a feeling because, again, it's, it's just a feeling. And you see if you can't connect with uh, maybe a little bit of a drop in mood. So you're supposed to do this every time you see a cloud? Well, for the do – no, the doing practice. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 because that seems slightly impractical. It's a, it's a lot a, of clouds. Correct. But to begin a practice, so when we get to the Sobe Mindful Sunrise, if we get to that, it would be – that would be a specific practice. And the, the way you start is there's the tree. You adjust your posture. There's the wind, so you take three slow, deep breaths. You, this is just the beginning, so you think the thought, smile, feel the feeling, frown, feel the feeling. And that all takes seconds, and now you are, you're not going to come back to that in the practice, but you've generated it to start the practice. And then you move to the, 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 the sun. The sun is awareness, but as a doing practice, the sun is warmth, spreading warmth. So then you would, in the spirit of um, Sharon Salzberg, you would... Bring someone to mind and wish for them, well, may you be happy. You spread warmth, and then you would bring it to yourself. So a very small loving-kindness practice, may I be happy. So that would be the doing practice, working through the four elements, the four primary elements, and that might take 30 seconds, 45 seconds. You could take five breaths. You could take fewer breaths. You could do the whole loving-kindness routine of not just may you be happy, but the others as well. It depends on the person and their own interest and relationship. And then now that the sun is out and the sun is awareness, you now come back to the tree and now it's aware of the body. And it can continue there with just a traditional awareness of the body practice. Or you can then move to the wind and now it's an awareness of the breath practice, and it stays right there. So for people who've been practicing for a very long time, they're there, and now the practice continues. There's no special you know, accoutrements or accessories or anything complicated about it. Or it could then move to clouds, and now you're aware of thoughts and feelings, that fundamental practice. Or then it could move to itself, the, wind, the sun, where it's aware of bare attention, choiceless awareness, just this open field of awareness. So that's using the elements really as a for a beginner or for somebody who's doing it a long time. It can be refreshing to sort of really reconnect. And then when you're outside and you're walking and all of a sudden you see a tree, you might stop. Like the students in the class this week, their instruction is when you see a tree outside, just once a day at most. You don't have to do this too much. Just stop and be aware of the, the body. I got you. So that's where I was getting confused. So this is a mixture of sort of in vivo, during your life practices. So when you see a tree, maybe once a day, you give, you know, you uh, straighten your posture or notice your posture. Same thing with clouds, sun, uh, wind. But it's also a sort of formal practice that you can do that's organized around these concepts. That's right. That's right. Well, at the same time, not trying to add anything to the rich body of contemplative practices, particularly in the mindfulness tradition that are already there. Well, given that there is, there are all these sort of how to meditate books, why, why this? Why now? Well, you know, one of the things that I think it offers is, and this was born out of my own early experience, that just 
happened fortuitously when I saw a tree one day and and while I was driving and I just really saw that tree like like something very nothing too esoteric but just uh, something it was a meaningful experience and I realized that that tree that I just happened to chance upon was the cue that woke me up so there's you know so I share it as what are called punctuated practices that you can just be out there during the day. And if you spend a little time reinforcing these images as really just a, a doing or a being practice that are fundamental to contemplative traditions already, then when you're outside, you won't just pass every tree with your mind lost in thought periodically or you won't have the breeze blow by you and be lost in thought. It might actually create the opportunity to wake up. And in that waking up, and this is in the spirit of Thich Nhat Hanh, for whom, as I've shared with you, I was deeply moved and touched and, and learned a great deal, this interbeing, right? This, this idea that the trees are all around us and we have this body, this idea that the wind is all around us and we have this breath, this idea that you know, things come and go and we have this mind, um, the idea that the sun is there and we have this quality of warmth and compassion and also this capacity to really be aware. I, I don't think it's... Um, it, 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 I don't think it's it, it's a surprise uh, that there is this connectedness between this impermanent thing that you and I wonderfully are here embodying and, and this world around us. I think that all sounds actually quite useful. Um, before – I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that we're almost out of time. But before we end, I know you've also written a book about parenting. Mm. So I have a three-year-old. Uh, your kids are older. What what kind of wisdom can you drop on me in terms of dealing with a three-year-old? For example, yesterday he was well, – I'll tell you what I did and you tell me if this is the right thing. <laughs> He's very attached to his mother as well he should be. She's great. Yes. And and daddy's – you know, I'm around but not – I travel a lot. I work a lot. So I'm, I'm less around than she is for sure. She He took a nap yesterday. She snuck out to – I don't know, do something. And um, I, she said he's going to freak out when he wakes up. But she actually wanted me to wake him up because she didn't want him to sleep too long. And she said it's probably going to be unpleasant, which I would have known. But um, <laughs> so I woke him up. So he didn't like that, A. And then B, his mother wasn't <laughs> around. So he was keening and wailing for a, a good long while. And my approach was to be like, are, are you, how are you feeling? What, can you tell me how you're feeling? He's like, I'm sad. I said, okay, it's okay to be sad. You know, tell me more about that. And so I sort of just drew him out on it, and uh, we hugged it out. And but then he would cry again, and we would talk again. And um, so that was my move, not knowing much about. Actually, I haven't read much about. Mm. I haven't read that book that you wrote, mm. nor have I read the book that John Kabat-Zinn wrote mm. about it that he very kindly sent me. I have not done a good job <laughs> of reading books about mindfulness and parenting. Um, so I just kind of did that. Does that sound right to you? What did I miss? I think it's beautiful, Dan. I think that you know you're, you're you're simultaneously speaking something that's really important, which is that we can read forever, and we can continue to learn and reinforce and remind ourselves of the things that we already know. Uh, or, and you've certainly been practicing for a good while and very seriously, and with a lot of heart and a lot of uh, intellect. Uh, when those moments arise, we uh, we can rise with them. And I think that what you just shared, uh, especially with that idea of being there and resonating with his emotional state so that he was not alone in it and you weren't 
invalidating or saying, no, let's you know, be different than you are, but you sort of you know, put a big uh, uh, hug around him and said, I'm here with you. And I think that that's uh, – he's a very lucky little boy. It's funny because I was thinking uh, about all these lofty thoughts of you know creating a safe container for your child's emotions. And I was recalling – all as all this was <laughs> happening, I was recalling moments where I had you know strong emotions as a child and my parents created the aforementioned container. But none of that is what actually got him – to calm down is when I heated up some quinoa and fed it to him, and then he ate, and he was totally fine. <laughs> well, two things about that. First of all, good, good quinoa, good, good job with, yes, the, with yeah. the. Um, but also, you know, for when the book Mindful Parenting was not about what to do in situations with your child, it was how you, as a parent, could, in the words of Ram Dass, create a spacious, resonant environment, so that when your child wants to come out and play, to be themselves. There's nothing inside of you that's going to keep them stuck, right? And so, uh, you know, so it's about us showing up and what we can do to be more mindfully present. Well, say more about that. So, what what would it be that, that would be inside of me that would that would squelch something that my child is hoping to express? Ah, that's a that's a really important question. I'll, I'll offer something. Just I don't deal well with. And I don't say this is this is one of my one of the one of the many flaws that I'm aware of that I am just trying to be work with more skillfully. For some reason, I have a bit of a negative reaction to operatic shows of emotion, hmm. displays of emotion, and my son is very prone to them. I mean, he's three, so I don't mm-hmm. know how, if that's going to be how he is as a person, but definitely does a lot of that as, as a toddler. And I can feel an internal. Mm-hmm. But I, I, try, I very much try to bring my practice to bear and I'm aware – try to be aware that that's happening and not let that uh, make me do something that would be you know scarring for him. But is that what you're talking about when you're talking about something internal to the parent that could emerge that would squash what a child is trying to express or am I off on the wrong sort of tangent here? No, I, I think that you're you're quite – Right, and you're on the tangent, and you sort of answered the question, I think, quite beautifully that you asked. the What is it inside of us that can have them stuck? They get angry or they get upset. They do what a child does, whether we are participating in their distress or because not doing what they'd like or they're just experiencing something. And then we get – we become angry with them because they're doing it in public and we're at the mall or we become – um, sad because our child is in distress and we're feeling that distress uh, or we become in some way in a state that's resisting what they are expressing. And that resisting, if we don't, as you really wonderfully put it, notice and observe and find a way of being okay in the midst of that, which is its own large you know, lesson and practice – then we will not respond in a way that we know those moments as a parent when what we do is like somehow quite right, not meaning giving them the, sh- the lollipop they want, but but being there for them, even if you know it's not a perfect moment in the way that we'd like everyone to be happy when it's over, or not, or not. And then we perhaps look back. You know, Dan Harris, Dan um, Stiegel has a nice thing about there's always ruptures in relationships, but we have the opportunity to repair. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer that the repair creates the larger opportunity, not going through and having no ruptures. Yeah. It was interesting that the 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 
I was not the person he wanted to be with, right? And so he wanted his mom. And obviously that, as a side, this is not great for my ego. But um, well, you chose you chose well. The person you you chose to spend your life with is yeah. the one he wants. So right, no, no, I, I don't. I have I know, no, I know. no existential stuff about my the state of my marriage. I more know. existential stuff about the quality of me as a human being because he was so upset to have me be there, not her. But it was it, even though I wasn't the one he wanted there, just allowing him to feel what he felt and telling him, oh, so it's totally fine to be sad. It's okay to be sad. Then he wanted to. He wanted to, when I offered him a hug, which I thought he wasn't going to want because he he was revulsed by my presence. <laughs> he actually really wanted a hug. Yes. Uh, so it was an interesting. It was interesting to watch that all play out. Um, okay, so I like to end on this completely unoriginal thing that I've come up with, which is what I call the plug zone. Uh-huh. So I want because I, I I love I want to give get because by anybody who's reached this point in the podcast is going to want to know more about you. So. Can you just tell us every book you've written, where we can find you on the internet, where we can find uh, social media that you may or may not be involved in? Give it all to us. Well, that's very kind. Um, well, let me say this since our time together is coming to an end here. First, to plug what you're speaking to, let me say that in this moment, Dan, I am really feeling a gratitude to you for – all that you've been doing, but also in this moment that I'm here with you and that we've had this conversation. I know that in a few minutes I'll be walking out the door and you'll be getting on with your day. And what will have, what will this time have, will it have been fitted away? And when I walk out the door and I hail an Uber or something, you know, will I just be, get a cell phone call and, and, and I, and I'm attentive to that. So in the waning moments of our time, let me say thank you. And as I'm looking at you, let me share with you as part of an answer to your question, if if anybody's going to take anything that I certainly have contributed in the books that I'll talk about, it, it it's wherever you find yourself in this moment, if there's a person sitting across from you, as you are me, to really be there for that person. If, if that's something that we bring into, we don't need a book for that. Um, and yet that's one of the most elusive things to really be there. So I wanted to share with you that I'm as as much as I can be, I'm here with you and I'm deeply grateful for that. And to all my teachers who have in things that I've read or people I've gotten the good fortune to learn from have helped me feel that because it's not necessarily the way I would have been 20 some odd years ago to your first question. The first book was Mindful Parenting. Uh, another book that shortly followed was uh, Mindfulness for Law Students. A related book is The Six-Minute Solution. That's a book, Mindfulness for Lawyers. Those two books use language of the law, like justice becomes allow the moment to be as it just is, You know, clever ways of playing with the language of the law to remind us to wake up in the middle of our day uh, and in the work that we do. Another uh, book that followed that I collaborated with is Mindfulness and Professional Responsibility, a guidebook for teaching law professors about how to introduce mindfulness into their curriculum. And the most recent book that you very thoughtfully uh, allowed us to talk a little bit about, and I'm grateful for that, is The Elements of Mindfulness, which introduces that particular methodology. And uh, website, Mm. social media, anything else? Website. 
So the Instagram that now that the, the you know that book the elements of mindfulness teaches a method called the Sobe mindful method. I come from South Beach, so it has a play on that. But really, it means you want to be mindful, so be mindful. Like don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. But of course, it it does take something. So there's an Instagram. Uh, so be mindful, which has images of trees and clouds, and so, sort of serve that purpose. Uh, a website, so be mindful.com. I have a website, scottrogers.com, things like that. And then at the law school, we have a, a mindfulness website. And also, my, collab- my wonderful dear friend and partner collaborator, Amishi Ja, at the University of Mi- Miami, we have a, uh, the You Mindfulness, which you've been kind enough to come down to and share. With many your 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 insights, uh, we have a uh, mindfulness.miami.edu. And she has been on this podcast. Mm, yes, she's very special. Um, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Been a great you, job. Dan. Okay, that does it for another edition of the Ten Percent Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.